Preaching is not a luxury for the church. It, it's an essential aspect of our, of our worship, a, a way in which God speaks every, every week when we gather to the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, we come to speak and to listen, to, to say what we need to say and to hear what needs to be heard as we gather around this table to receive the body and blood of the Lord and the blessing of God and sent back out into the world to be what we've seen, to become what we've eaten, and to live what we've heard. My son, Emery, my youngest, who's seven, has been really sick this week. He's recovered now, but because of that, he's going to sit in on the service today. And before service, on the way here, as we were driving in, he let me know that this, he was excited to listen to me speak today. He doesn't normally get to do it because he's with the kids. And he said, and I'm going to rate you on a 1 to 10 scale. <laughs> and don't think I'm going to give you a 10 automatically because you're my dad. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. If that seems like a lot of pressure, know this. John Calvin, who was a reformer and led a community, a Protestant community in Geneva, had a consistory, a kind of body of judgment, a court, for which people could be tried for the following violations. Of course, fornication and adultery, blasphemy, but also sermon violations. And we know for sure that one year there were over 100 accusations of sermon violations in Geneva, and 30-something people were found guilty of that. Also, you could be condemned for Catholic behavior, whatever that is. So when, with me here preaching, there's almost certainly going to be a, a sermon violation. And then after that, Bishop Ed is going to come up and there's going to be some Catholic behavior. So we're in a lot of trouble this morning. When you, th when you put it like that, the 1 to 10 scale doesn't seem as intimidating. I'd rather my son judge me than John Calvin. <laughs> I, I do believe, though, that I, that I have, and I don't say this lightly, that I have a word for us in this moment, for sanctuary, right in this moment of change, of shift for us as a community. We are undergoing, I don't need to tell you this, those of you who are somewhat new to sanctuary, you already sense it, that we're a community in transition, and our culture is shifting. I mean, there is a sea change in the world. And as we prayed to begin this service, as the sea is changing, we're going to lift our sails and let the wind of God carry us somewhere. And I, I want to speak to what that looks like, what it means to lift our sails and where God is going to take us. But I want to leave Tulsa first and go to Paris. Uh, Dwayne and Teresa have gone to Paris without me. A few years ago on Pentecost Sunday, Bishop Ed went to Rome without me. This is the story of my life, people going to exotic places, <laughs> leaving me home. But I, I want to, in our imaginations, go to Paris about 90 years ago, 1937. There is a man named Nicholas Berdaev, whose nickname was the Apostle of Freedom. That's a, that's a killer nickname, the Apostle of Freedom. I'm a little worried he gave it to himself, but regardless, <laughs> he, Berdaev had been, of course, born in Russia and had lived through what's called the Bolshevik Revolution. He had seen the turmoil that, in his home country, he had lived through World War I. In Paris, he had seen what had taken place, and it's, he's on the cusp, 1937, on the cusp of the rise of Hitler and the National Socialist Party, and he can see that the world is, is again heading into fanaticism. And he writes this essay about fanaticism, 1937 in Paris, and identifies what he had learned 
over those years about what makes fanatics fanatical. Like what drives someone to be a fanatic? And, and he says things that may seem obvious. I mean, he talks about the ways in which it feeds on fear and how demagogues prey on that fear to drive people to their worst possible behaviors. But in the middle of the essay, at the, in, a, in a kind of surprising turn, he, he makes this statement almost offhandedly that the fanatic never sets himself before God, but sets himself instead before people because, he says, the fanatic needs an enemy. The fanatic needs an enemy and needs to think always only about other people who threaten the way of life that he feels bound to guard. And over the last few weeks, I, I keep being brought back to that line. A fanatic does not set himself before God. Fanaticism dies in prayer. You cannot truly be a fanatic and truly pray. One of those things will end. Either you'll be a fanatic and you'll only seem to pray, like the Pharisees who want to be seen to pray but don't truly open their hearts up to God, or if you pray, it will kill the fanaticism in you. Because it will, slowly, you'll begin to take on the humility and the openness and the gentleness of the God you've opened your heart to. And I want to begin there, and then I want to go back about 750 years, same city, Paris, to Thomas Aquinas, who is my friend the way that Rowan Williams is Father Paul's friend. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas also had a nickname. He did not give himself. He was called the Dumb Ox. I was once given a nickname that was somewhat like the dumb ox, but it was the smart ass, not the dumb ox. <laughs> it makes me kindred spirits with him, I think. So the dumb ox is preaching a sermon 750 years ago in Paris, the city that Dwayne and Teresa went to without me. Not long before he goes back to Rome, which is the city Bishop Ed went to without me. It's a theme of grievances here. But he's, he's preaching the sermon on Pentecost Sunday, and he takes as his text one that was given to us today in the reading, Psalm 104, in which the psalmist says, you send forth your spirit, God, you send forth your spirit, and all things are created. You send forth your spirit and renew the face of the whole earth. So that's his text. And, and I do, just as a footnote, I do love that 750 years ago in Paris, they were reading and preaching the same text that we are being, we've been given today in Tulsa. Right? So Aquinas has taken that text, and, and in his day in Paris, he was a professor at the University of Paris, which was a kind of cultural, intellectual center of the Western world at the time. They had an all-day event, somewhat like we're doing today. In, they started in the morning, they had a worship service, mass, he preaches the sermon, after the Mass, they go and have a meal together, a festival, and then that evening he preached again. So he preached part A in the morning and part B in the evening. On this text, you send forth your spirit and renew the face of the whole earth. One of the things we know now is that when Aquinas was preaching that sermon, he was under enormous personal political pressure. So he is been commanded by the Pope to counteract what is, known, what is called a certain kind of heresy, and he is very much disliked by the people who are around him, including by his bishop in the city, which I hope there's no relevance there to us this morning. Thank you for laughing about that. 
And in, so the, the dumb ox is preaching this sermon. We know now at a time in which he's just months away from actually stopping his writing altogether, years at the most, and not far from his death. And in those last years of his life, when he gives up writing, gives up any, any kind of hope of finishing the projects he had started, he is, because of the pressure against him, he's condemned for many of his teachings as a heretic. And for hundreds of years after his death, he's considered some, someone toxic, someone whose teachings you don't want to touch. Now, today, he's considered the doctor of the church in the Catholic tradition. But for a long time, he was suspect. We know also that the city of Paris was just, just on the cusp of a horrible disaster. But if you go back and study that sermon that he preached in 1272 or so in Paris, one of the things that's striking about it is that you would never know anything was going on in his life. You would never know the turmoil in the university or the city or the cathedral because he simply takes this text about God's spirit being sent to renew the earth and preaches about God. And I, when I study that sermon, I'm reminded of what the apostle of freedom said, that the fanatic cannot dwell in the presence of God. That what Aquinas was modeling for us was this willingness to kind of turn away from all the trouble in his life, away from the Franciscans who were troubling, troubling him. At the time, he was writing a book called On the Eternity of the Word Against the Grumblers. And the grumblers, that was a, a backhand at the Franciscans who were persecuting him because of his teaching. So he's giving this sermon. His heart and mind had to be filled with all the accusations, all the pressures that were at play around him. He's at the center of this enormous controversy. But that Sunday when he preached on the Spirit, you would have had no sense that he was caught up in that turmoil. And there's something deeply holy about that. Now hear me carefully. There is a kind of piety that is indifferent to what happens to your neighbor. It's indifferent to injustice. And there is a way of going into prayer or going into what looks like prayer that's simply a, a lack of care for what's happening in the world. And that isn't good. But there is something profoundly holy about being aware of all that's wrong in your own life, all that's wrong in the lives of the people that you love, all that's wrong in the world in which you're living in. And in spite of that awareness, bringing it into the presence of God and speaking about God and to God and focusing your attention on who God is. This is one of the things I think we have to come back to again and again. We are people who should be active resisting injustice. But whatever activism we're involved in, it has to be carried along by the activity of God or it is vanity. If it's not born of prayer, if it's not born of intimacy with God, an openness to God in the spirit, then it will not matter in the end. And so we need to come back again and again to this wisdom that before we are anything else and after we are anything else, we are people of the spirit, people of prayer, people of the table, people who open our lives up to God so that God's life can take shape in us. So I want to go from Paris even further back, almost 2,000 years ago, to Jerusalem and the upper room. And a man who has a nickname, the Nazarene, or the friend of sinners. And he is saying his last words. He knows he's about to die. 
and he knows he's about to die a horrific, horrific death. And he's giving his last words, what, what is called in John's gospel, the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. So there he is in Jerusalem in the upper room talking to his closest friends about what's to come. And he, ha- he says to them, and we heard it today in the, in the reading, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when I go, I will send the Spirit, and the Spirit will lead you into all truth. The Spirit will lead you into all truth, and the Spirit will not speak of himself. He will speak only what he hears. Now listen to what Jesus is saying. I'm about to leave you, and it's good news whether you know it or not. I'm about to leave you, but when I leave, I'm going to send the Spirit. And what will happen to you is that you will receive a Spirit who is the Spirit of listening. The Spirit who never speaks except what he hears. And when the spirit of listening is in you, you will be changed to become more and more capable of bearing what I have to say to you that I can't say to you now. So think about this, just days before his death, hours before his death, weeks before what we know as Pentecost, Jesus is telling them, I have things to say to you, but you can't hear them, but you will hear them after you have let the spirit of listening form your soul and mind and heart. And so, fast forward, just a little more than 50 days, same upper room, same city. The apostles, the community are gathered with the mother of our Lord and the spirit falls. The spirit of listening falls. And what's the first thing the text tells us? Acts 2, and suddenly they heard a sound. Suddenly they heard a sound of a rushing mighty wind and it fills the house and then they see tongues of fire settling upon the head of each one of the believers and then they begin to speak the praises of God. And the miracle, Luke tells us, is that they spoke every language of the earth He says that there were people there from every nation of the earth and every one of them heard the praises of God in their own language. A miracle of speech, except, except mostly people mocked it. There were really two responses when this happened. So the apostles are in the upper room, the spirit falls, they hear the sound, they see the fire, the light, they begin to speak God's praises and a crowd begins to gather and somehow in here, they begin to stumble out of the upper room into the temple courts, down into the streets and people begin to flood around them and the responses are mockery or confusion. Either these people are drunk off their tails or what in the world is this? And right in the middle of that moment of confusion, and and notice how the move of God brings that confusion. The, The move of God, because it's new, because it's unexpected, the only way people who don't have the spirit of listening can hear it is as babble. If you don't have the spirit of listening, when God speaks, all you hear is thunder. All you hear is noise. All you hear is confusion. And so people respond either by mocking or by asking, what is this? And Peter says, standing up with the 11, which is striking because he had had thought he was more faithful than anyone else. If everyone else forsakes you, I will not. But now that he has the spirit of listening in him, he understands that he's always standing with others. He doesn't stand alone. And so he stands with the 11 and he raises his voice and says, these people are not drunk like you think. 
It's only nine o'clock in the morning. I love that he doesn't say, these people aren't drunk. We wouldn't do that. He just says, we wouldn't do that this early. (laughs) I mean, we've got standards, right? We've got some self-control. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. This is what Joel prophesied. This is what Joel prophesied. So what I want you to see is that between just a couple of months ago, between that time that Jesus said, I have things to say, but you cannot hear them now. And now Peter has become the kind of person who can speak what he hears. It took those two months or so for Peter to get formed enough to be the kind of person who, instead of denying Christ, stands up with the 11, faces the city, and says, this is not what you think it is. This is what Joel prophesied. And by the way, you killed this man, Jesus, but God has raised him up, and through him he is going to reconcile all things, bring renewal to the whole earth. That transition from being someone who denies Christ in arrogance to someone who stands up with the 11, finds his own voice and says, this is the prophecy fulfilled. Come to terms with what God has called you to do. That's what happens as you dwell in the presence of the spirit of listening. And so I'm gonna take you one more place and then we're gonna come to the table. I'm gonna go to Babylon 2,500 years ago, 500 plus years before what happened in the upper room into the mind of the prophet Ezekiel, who's as weird and wild as any human being has ever been. There's a reason that there are people who think he was a schizophrenic. If you want to know, if you want to know the weirdest parts of the Bible, almost all of them are in Ezekiel. And that's saying a lot because there's a lot of the Bible that's strange. But Ezekiel is in Babylon. Again, he's in a center of culture. His people are in exile. And suddenly he has a vision. Listen to this, Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. Now, we've, we've heard this sermon so much, and I am hurrying, I promise, but we've heard this sermon so much that it's taken the edge off of the horror of this moment. The, the weirdness of this moment. Like we think of the Valley of Dry Bones a little bit like we think about the skeletons in the Halloween parties. You know, it, they're, they're, it's been domesticated. But this was not a domestic experience. In the 1100s, a little bit before Aquinas preached his sermon in Paris, there was a, an outbreak of anti-Jewish violence in England, in Norwich, And just a few years ago, they discovered the skeletons of 17 Jewish people who had been thrown down a well, a family, including their kids, and killed by Christians persecuting Jews. Now imagine standing at that well over the bones, a thousand years dead almost. That's what it was like for Ezekiel. He's suddenly in this valley of bones, And God is just leading him around. Listen to what he says. He led me all around them. There were a great many on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. Then God said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's no fool. He's seen some things. Lord God, only you know. 
He said to me, prophesy concerning these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I'm Yahweh. So I prophesied as I had been commanded. While I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. As I looked, tendons appeared on them, flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. So he's set down in this valley, he's given a command, he prophesies, the bodies gather, but they're lifeless. They're lifeless. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son. Say to it, this is what the Lord God says, breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, the breath entered them and they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now the stunning thing is that means Ezekiel's bones are in this valley too. He's speaking to his own dead body. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Look at them and listen. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is perished and we are cut off. Now, this is what I had never seen until this week and what I feel like is the word for sanctuary. I grew up on hearing this text preached. I grew up hearing the prophecy about speaking to the dead bones and them coming together and speaking to the breath and giving them life. But if you read the text, even after he's prophesied and the bones have gathered and the tendons have shaped and the skin has come, even after he's prophesied to the breath and they're breathing, they are still speaking death. What are they still saying? We're cut off. Because somehow, even after they've been gathered and even after they've been revived, they have the trauma in their hearts of what they'd been through. This is exactly what happens to Israel when they come out of Egypt, through the wilderness. When they get to the promised land, as they're passing through the wilderness, they've been brought out. God has delivered them, but Egypt is still in them. And he says, listen to what they're saying. Our bones are dried up, our hope is perished, we are cut off. Therefore, prophesy again to them and say, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up my people and lead you into the land and you will know that I am Yahweh. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it. So here's the word of the Lord, sanctuary. When the spirit moves... The spirit moves us out of the upper room into the valley of dry bones. Out from the place where we've hidden away into the place where there are people who feel God forsaken. When God moves, he moves you toward the God forsaken. And when we're there, and listen, we're a week away from facing the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Rays Massacre. We are at the center of one of the worst moments in our shared history. 
we are standing in a valley of dry bones. And not just that issue, but a thousand things, a hundred thousand things. We are the people of God called to stand in the valley of dry bones, knowing that when we prophesy and people gather and we prophesy and people breathe, there's still some part of them that remains traumatized by the death that they live through. We can't get frustrated. Sometimes you speak a word and people gather, you speak a word and they breathe, and then when they start talking, what they talk about is, they, well, they grumble. We're still dead. We're still cut off. But we just keep hearing what God is saying. And what I love about this story is all the way through it, God keeps saying the same thing. Prophesy, son of man, they will live. Sanctuary, this is the word of the Lord for us. Our time has come to stand up like Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, filled with the spirit of listening, to find our own voice and to prophesy life, knowing that there will always be a time in which people respond but don't respond fully. We're going to run up against that trouble again and again and again. People will gather but not live, live but still grumble. But on the other side of every one of those letdowns, what we have to hear God saying is, you're my people and I put my breath in you. Prophesy, prophesy life. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you that you've called me, you've called us, with Bishop Ed and Father Paul. You've called us, the clergy of this diocese, this family in this house, you've called us to be people who are filled with the spirit of listening. God, move us toward the God forsaken. Set us in the valley of dry bones and put your word in our mouth. Put your word in our mouth so that we're not just alive, but we are moved by you. And we can hear what the bones are saying and we can hear what you are saying. This is the cry of my heart, God. The cry of our heart is that we will listen as you listen and we will hear what the bones are saying. Even after they've been revived, we will hear what people are saying, but we will also hear what you are saying and we will speak life. We will speak life until there is no more death. Give us that grace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.